In this third episode of Rock Icon's series about Pink Floyd, I'll return to the band's career, this time in the decade of the 1970s. By late 1969, Pink Floyd had released their album Oma Gumma, to general critical and sales success. The album peaked at number 5 on the UK charts, and actually remained in the chart for a total of 21 weeks. I'm going to pick up again for this episode with the band's work for their next album. The 70s would be a definitive time for Pink Floyd because their output will propel them to fame and I will cover in greater depth one of their key albums from 1979, The Wall, in a separate side episode. But for now, let's continue the iconic journey of Pink Floyd. Early versions of Pink Floyd's next album, what would be called Atom Heart Heart Mother, were heard in January 1970. But there were a number of disagreements amongst the band relating to the mixing of the lead track, and as a result, composer and writer Rob Geeson was employed to work on these sound problems. Geeson worked alongside John Adlis to complete the record, Indeed, Pink Floyd flew to France in August 1970 to play some festival dates and during their stay with families and crew, there were evident tensions bubbling between the key band members. But not only that, there were also disagreements about the live performances. The lead song in early performances took a long time to be named and it was actually played, for example, at the Bath Festival in Somerset on the 27th of June 1970 under the name The Amazing Pudding. By the time of the 18th of July, when Pink Floyd played the headline spot at a free Blackhill Enterprise concert in Hyde Park, the song was given its permanent name, Atom Heart Mother. The story goes that Roger Waters read a newspaper article detailing how a woman had been fitted with a prototype heart pacemaker, and this inspired the song's title. On the album version, Atom Heart Mother lasts 23 minutes and 44 seconds, and it certainly maintained this length in various live performances. Adding to the spectacle of the song was a choir section directed by John Adlis and a brass ensemble as were included in both the performances at Bath Festival and Hyde Park. However, the logistics of touring and rehearsing with such ensembles proved difficult and later live performances pared down their arrangement to 15 minutes without these sections. The second single of the album was a short folked folk-style introspective ditty called If, written and sung by Roger Waters. If was compared by several critics to Waters' earlier contribution to Amagama, Grandchester Meadows. The next track was a Richard Wright composition called Summer 68, and it was supposedly written about an experience Wright had had with a band groupie and the spiritual emptiness he felt following this encounter. In Mark Blake's 2013 biographical book of Pink Floyd called Pigs Might Fly, he quotes Wright as explaining, In the summer of 68, there were groupies everywhere. They'd come and look after you like a personal maid, do your washing, sleep with you, and leave you with a dose of the clap, referring to an SDI. David Gilmore contributed to the next track, Fat Old Son, similar in its pastoral feel to Waters If. Mark Blake writes in quotes that the lyrics suggest by bucolic summer evenings by the mill pond in Cambridge rather than on a hippie ranch in Laurel Canyon. In essence, it is a very English sounding folk song, unlike more West Coast bands of the time like Crosby, Stills and Nash. Perhaps, though, the most famous and memorable of the tracks on Atom Heart Mother is the 13-minute-long closing song, Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast. The song is made up of several sections. Section 1, Rise and Shine, consists of pianos, bat, bass, 
organ, hi-hats, and a steel guitar. Alan is heard talking to himself as he ponders what he would like for breakfast, for example, going through things like scrambled eggs, marmalade, porridge, or cereal. Section 2, Sunny Side Up, is written and performed by David Gilmore using acoustic guitars and a steel guitar. The third section, Morning Glory, is heavily features, sorry, it heavily features Rick Wright's piano overdubbed as well as many of the instruments, instruments featured in the first section. And Alan eventually, le eventually leaves his house and is faintly heard getting in his car and driving off. Although Alan's psychedelic breakfast is credited as a full band contribution, Mark Blake writes that it is really the work of Nick Mason. The Alan of the song is the sound roadie, is the sound, sorry, of Rody Alan Styles, as he is heard preparing and eating his breakfast rather loudly. The dripping tap and other sounds featured in the track were actually recorded in Nick Mason's kitchen. Mark Blake opines that the song is, in quotes, harmless fun, but the joke runs dry over 13 minutes. In a review from December 1970 for Rolling Stone, Alec Dubrow described Alan's psychedelic breakfast as, in quotes, the only redeeming feature, but only partially so. The lukewarm critical reception of the album has been pretty much echoed by members of the band themselves. Indeed, Roger Waters and Rick Wright have expressed disappointment, disappointment with the album and Gilmore has been quoted as saying it was probably our lowest point artistically. The album was released in October 1970 and it would prove rather successful despite these feelings over its quality. In fact, Atom Heart Mother went to number one on the UK album chart and number 55 in the US. Sounds magazine were far more optimistic towards the album, calling it rich and gently atmospheric, and Beat Instrumental heralded it, it, it for moving Floyd onto new ground. Another element of the album up for discussion was the cover image, which is that of a single cow in a green field. The graphic art group Hyp Hypnosis, co-founded by graphic designer Storm Thorgerson, have worked with Pink Floyd on a number of their albums, and Atom Heart Mother was no different. Hypnosis sought an image for the album that would take Pink Floyd away from their psychedelic connotations. The cow, apparently named Lulabelle III, was photographed in Hertfordshire. Aubrey Powell, the other founder of Hypnosis, recalled to Mark Blake that when he showed the photograph to Roger Waters, he, in quotes, burst out laughing and loved it. Following the release of Atom Heart Mother, Pink Floyd embarked on a demanding tour schedule across America and Europe in 1970. A typical set list from the so-called Atom Heart Mother era included starting with Astronomy Domain, Interstellar Overdrive, Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun, A Saucer Full of Secrets, Symboline, and then going on to play Green is the Colour, Careful with that Axe Eugene, Granchester Meadows, Embryo, Heartbeat, Pigmeat, Atom Heart Mother, Fat Old Son, and Alan Psychedelic Breakfast. However, the last song was only played for a few times in that December. Upon their return in early 1971, Pink Floyd set about working on new music. David Gilmore is quoted by Mark Blake as saying, We were looking for something during the whole period through Uma Gumma, and Atom Heart Mother, we were finding ourselves. Echoes was the point at which we found our focus. Echoes would be included on what would become Pink Floyd's next album, Medal. Recording of this album began in January of 1971, but tape recorder John Leckie recalls that the band were spending a significant amount of time years previously working on material for something initially known as the Household Objects album. This featured recordings of music using the sounds of objects like wine glasses and cigarette lighters, tearing of newspapers and spraying of aerosols. John Leckie tells Mark Blake that this idea was more the brainchild of Nick Mason, but the idea was discarded in quotes and left to the rubbish library. Indeed, Gilmore is also quoted by Blake as saying Echoes was 
sorry, Echo's arrival was less a moment of epiphany than a series of moments in which the band eventually managed to create something worthwhile from the rubbish library. Echoes began from a note played on the piano by Rick Wright, which was then fed through a Leslie cabinet to heighten the sound. John Leckie also recalls to Mark Blake in quotes that, We also did this thing with two tape recorders. You get two machines, one each side of the room, run the tape through one, then thread it through the other and record on the first one and play back on the other. So there's a delay. The end of Echoes, when the voices swell up, is a snippet of that technique. The verses of Echoes are sung in harmony by David Gilmore and Rick Wright, alongside a riff shared on bass played by Roger Waters and guitar by Gilmore. The middle of the song consists of an amalgamation of sound experiments by Gilmore and Nick Mason. The entire second side of Meadow, when released, was devoted to Echoes, and Mason has stated that this decision was so that the first side could feature more radio-friendly material. In a Rolling Stone review by Jean Charles Costa in January 1972, Echoes is described in quotes as a 23-minute Pink Floyd oral extravaganza, and that in quotes, all of this plus a funky organ-based drum segment and a stunning Gilmore solo adds up to a fine extended electronic outing. Many critics have hailed the track as a masterpiece and a standout in the live tour following Meadow's release. However, in their 2017 book, Pink Floyd, All the Songs, The Story Behind Every Track, Jean Michael Gosden and Philippe Margotten quote Rick Wright as describing Echoes as one of the finest tracks the Floyd have ever done, Waters and Gilmore as labelling the song a precursor to Dark Side of the Moon, but Mason feels the song may be overlong. In a 2004 interview, Waters discussed the inspiration for Echoes and explained the lyrics were about his sense of disconnection, particularly after Sid Barrett's departure from the band. Mark Blake writes more on this in quotes. Waters and his wife Judy Trim had moved to a flat in Shepherd's Bush, West London. One window in the apartment afforded a clear view of the bushy Goldhawk Road, down which the couple would observe an ant-like procession of commuters heading off for a day's toil in the morning and returning in the evening. The lyrics referring to strangers passing in the street were, he explained, all about making connections with other people, about the potential that human beings have for recognising each other's humanity. Perversely, despite the icy distance that would develop between some of those writing and performing the music, the theme of communication, of reaching out, would be one the band would return to obsessively. The first side of Meadow consisted of five tracks, of which were co-written by Gilmore and Waters. The opening track, One of These Days, is completely instrumental outside of Nick Mason's rather threatening and eerie spoken lines, One of These Days, I'm going to cut you into little pieces. The dominant sound on One of These Days is bass guitar played through the Vincent Echorec, or Echorec, sorry, unit, causing a delay effect. Gilmore came up with the riff and, and Waters then thought that it would work well played on bass guitar. The second track is a softer display of acoustic guitar called A Pillow of Winds. In his own book about Pink Floyd, Nick Mason says the name of the song came from a mahjong move, a game the band played frequently when touring during this time. Continuing the slower acoustic sound, the third song on Meadow was Fearless, featuring Waters playing the acoustic guitar. It is sometimes referred to as You'll Never Walk Alone because the song features the You'll Never Walk Alone football chant associated with Liverpool FC. According to Aaron Starkey for Far Out magazine, a 2021 article, none of the Pink Floyd members are Liverpool fans. In fact, Waters, Gilmore and Mason were Arsenal fans. In 1971, Arsenal achieved two historical victories and Starkey writes in quotes, the only reason we can think that Pink Floyd would include the anthem was as part of that very Pink Floyd-styled sarcasm. Part of Arsenal's double-winning season was beating Liverpool in the FA Cup final 
given Waters is also very adept at irony, this would make a lot of sense. The other two songs included on medal are a solo written Waters song, Saint-Tropez, and a group performed country blues styled song, Seamus or Seamus. Meadow was released as Pink Floyd's sixth studio album in October 1971. Of the album's significance, Mark Blake writes in quotes, If, as Rogers Wa Roger Waters once claimed, Atom Heart Mother was the beginning of the end, then Meadow was the beginning of something completely new. Unlike Umagama, or much of Atom Heart Mother, it sounded like the work of a band pulling together rather than four individuals working alone and collectively battling to escape the shadow of their departed frontman. Meadow sounded like Pink Floyd's future. Although Meadow would not reach the same chart success as its predecessor, Atom Heart Mother, it did achieve a number three position on the album chart in, in the UK, but only reached number 70 in the US. Nevertheless, Meadow was considered by Rolling Stone as a showcase for Gilmore's presence in Pink Floyd, and Sounds magazine praised much of the album for including Oh, sorry, um he praised much of the album including Echoes as being in quotes one of the most complete pieces of music Pink Floyd have ever done. In contrast though, Melody Maker magazine's deputy editor at the time, Michael Watts, labelled the album muddled and said in quotes, the vocals verged on the drippy and featured instrumentals that are decidedly old hat. In response to the album, Pink Floyd completed a shorter tour from October to November 1971 in the United States and Canada. They also performed Echoes and other material as part of a filmed live performances at the Amphitheatre of Pompeii. Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii was a concert documentary film directed by Adrian Navin. It was filmed over approximately four days in October 1971, using the band's usual touring equipment and without an audience. Prior to the film's release the following year, additional material was filmed in Paris at a television studio. The project came about after Mabin contacted David Gilmore and then manager Steve O'Rourke about his idea. Mabin had a contact at the University of Naples and it was he who negotiated a deal to secure private use of the amphitheatre for six days of filming. Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii was originally premiered at the Edinburgh International Film Festival on the 2nd of September 1972 but later an edited version that included studio material of the band working on the dark side of the moon was released in 1974. The film, at its initial release, was met with favourable to sceptical reviews and it was not particularly successful financially. However, Mabin argues the film had its thunder stolen somewhat by Pink Floyd's next album, Dark Side of the Moon. Around 1971, the time that Pink Floyd were recording Meadow, Roger Waters was already vocal about his boredom and dissatisfaction with the direction of the band. Mark Blake writes that Waters, in quotes, loathed the space rock label attached to Floyd and he was tiring of requests to play old favourites like Astronomy Domain and See Emily Play. Blake goes on to write, in quotes, Integral to this future of Pink Floyd would be Roger Waters' desire for a grand show. While Waters would complain that the musicians in the band, namely Wright and Gilmore, were opposed to anything theatrical, there was a tactic understanding among all four that in the absence of a sex symbol frontman such as Robert Plant or Mick Jagger, they'd better find other ways to hold an audience's visual attention. Waters was interested in pursuing the direction Echoes took the band because it was thematic, epic and drove them into material about real life experiences and emotions. Recording for what would become The Dark Side of the Moon began in May 1972 until January 1973. 
It was aided by sound engineer Alan Parsons, who was in turn assisted by producer Chris Thomas and recorded at Abbey Road Studios. Prior to the band's first session at Tika Studios, Waters had presented his vision to create music exploring existential questions and anxieties. Waters explains in Blake's book, in quotes, That was always my big fight in Pink Floyd. To try and drag it kicking and screaming back from the borders of space, from the whimsy that Sid was into, to my concerns, which were much more political and philosophical. And so, at the helm of waters, the brand, the, the group, sorry, brainstormed the elements of their own lives that caused them the greatest anxiety. And these included things like the monotony of travelling, fear of getting older, violence and greed, and of course, psychological decline. Compositions by Rick Wright on the piano that had been abandoned years earlier were picked up again and used as the music for songs like Us and Them and The Great Gig in the Sky and home demos by Waters were used for songs such as Money and Time. Pink Floyd essentially road-tested much of the material for the album live before it was properly recorded in the studio. These included gigs at Portsmouth Guildhall, the Carnal Ballroom in Coventry, and Free, and Free Trade Hall in Manchester, although it was cancelled after one full song due to a power outage. They debuted what was being called the dark, then, sorry, the dark Side of the Moon, a piece for assorted lunatics in London for a four-night stint at the Rainbow Theatre in February 1972. In February 2022, Robin Denshaw reflected in The Guardian that this show was, in quotes, one of the finest rock concerts I have ever heard. He wrote a review at the time, 1972, available from The Guardian archive, and in it, Denshaw predicts, in quotes, the new work on which is, in which this is all used, the dark side of the moon, will stand beside Sergeant Pepper and Tommy as one of the rock classics. Furthermore, he writes, in quotes, These days, they don't just use a quadraphonic system, but fill the hall with speakers, so the sound comes literally from all sides. The new work, which deals with madness and is their first in which the lyrics are important, is almost an hour long and includes taped noises of everything from manic electronic groaning to a church service that slowly becomes a cacophony of cash registers in bald print that may sound like gimmickery, but when such effects were used as balance to, main, to a main theme or improvisation, the effect was startling and exhilarating. In the past, they have concentrated on soaring ethereal organ for grand optimistic works like Atom Heart Mother. Dark Side of the Moon is conceived on the same bold scale, but it is tougher and more varied. It has slow lyrical passages, reminiscent of echoes, and choppy riffs coupled with almost free-form improvisation. The result was sad, magnificent, and exquisite. Little wonder that many of the audience left in tears. The rainbow shows were always played to packed audiences and opened with Dark Side of the Moon, then one of these days, and closing with Echoes. The song Eclipse was written by Waters as the finale of the album, and actually this song would briefly become the name of the album. This was because a band called Medicine Head had recently released their own album titled Dark Side of the Moon, but the sales were little of a threat and Pink Floyd resorted back to using the name for their album title again. The early live versions of tracks like Great Gig in the Sky were changed for the recording, on the advice of sound engineer Alan Parsons. Indeed, back when this song was in its infancy and still being labelled the religious section, Parsons advised using Wright's piano version as opposed to the live version which used the Hammond and effects. In Mark Blake's book, Parsons is quoted as saying it was one of the best things Rick Wright ever did. Parsons made some other amendments too, and he used archive audio from NASA and dubbed some of the astronauts talking in space onto the track. However, he recalls that when Pink Floyd heard this change, they were not enthusiastic. Eventually, the band would agree for a female vocal over the music. Alan Parsons suggested vocalist Claire Torrey, or Torrey, 
and she was asked to improvise upon hearing the music. She did three takes and all of these were used to create a final vocal to be added to Great Gig in the Sky. Originally, Tori was paid a flat rate of £30 for her contribution. However, she later sued EMI and Pink Floyd and came to an out-of-court settlement of an undisclosed settlement for songwriting credit in 2005. Afterwards, Rick Wright and Claire Tory were referred to as co-creditors of the track. For the spoken words featured in Great Gig in the Sky, Waters put together a number of questions on scraps of paper exploring existential themes and they asked various crew, staff and others to record responses, from which they added several to the final song. Money was another track that went through various alterations. Waters had a home studio to record, which was in fact a shed in his garden. From here, he used his then-wife Judy Trim's pottery equipment to capture the sound of coins being thrown and moved around in one of these pottery bowls, writes Mark Blake. For the album recording, this tape had to be redone. Blake explains the issue in quotes. The band had now decided that the album should be released in quadraphonic, as well as stereo, an added complication which would backfire when the album was released, as few record buyers owned quadraphonic sound systems on which to play it. The aim then was for the sound effects to essentially circle the room. This meant that each of the sounds they wanted to include, the coins, the ringing cash register, the sound of money, in reality just paper being torn up, all had to be recorded on different tracks. The final sound of money was a major departure for Pink Floyd as it had a 7 over 4 and 4 over 4 riffs, making it fit more into the funk or soul genre. Indeed, Gilmore is quoted as telling Rolling Stone in 2003 that I was a big Booker T fan. We played Green Onions on stage. I'd done a fair bit of that stuff. It was something I thought we could incorporate into our sound without anyone spotting where the influence came from. And to me, it worked. Nice white English architecture students getting funky is a bit of an odd thought. And it isn't as funky as, as all that. It also features a solo from saxophonist Dick Parry. And the sound effects were worked in on loop, made up of cash registers ringing and those rattling money coins. The lyrics for the song were written solely by Roger Waters. Waters would also write Brain Damage and Eclipse alone, and these two songs closed the album, each touching on the subject of madness. In Cliff Jones' 1996 book Echoes, the stories behind every Pink Floyd song, Roger Waters is quoted as describing brain damage as a song about isolation and or people's, in quotes, inability to respond to the child or the real human being living inside. But German literary scholar and media theorist Friedrich Kittler analyses the song in a different way. In a 2006 article entitled Implosion and Intoxication, Hitler, a German classic, and Pink Floyd, for the Theory, Culture and Society Journal by Jeffrey Winthrop Young, he writes in quotes, Hitler treats brain damage not as a song that invites interpretations, but as a highly seductive techno-acoustic event one whose seductive qualities are due to sophisticated performance of the technological progression that enabled these qualities. It is nothing less than a genealogy of rock music in the age of technologically implemented madness. The lyrics of Brain Damage progress from The Lunatic's on the Grass to The Lunatic is in the Hall and finally to The Lunatic is in My Head. For Kittler, advances in sound production allow the voices at the final stage to surround the listener from all sides. Winthrop Young writes that, in Kittler's spirit, there are three ways to interpret brain damage. First is the rather traditional, 
or straightforward one, in that the song is about Sid Barrett's departure and personal madness. Winthrop Young writes in quotes, Precisely this exclusion, however, enabled Pink Floyd's global success. The band, which could not have started without Barrett, could not go on with him. But in Kittler's reading, brain damage also alludes to Apostle Bill return off, or rather to, the excluded, for the song may well induce its own title, in which case the band will truly start playing different tunes, and thus join their former leader on the dark side of the moon, that is, in madness. Using the most up-to-date recording technology, brain damage performs the age-old association of moons with madness. The second analysis is exploring the notion of madness. What does it actually mean to be mad? And the third, writes Winthrop Young, is that, in quotes, brain damage is not literature. It is a complex recording that stimulates its own title to such a degree that madness and music are as difficult to tell apart as outside and inside voices. Indeed, Kittler writes in 1982 that, in quotes, lunatics appear to be more informed than their doctors. They spell out that madness rather than babbling metaphorically of radio transmitters in one's brain is quite on the contrary, contrary sorry, a metaphor of technologies. This is just one rather philosophical and abstract description of the song's meaning. And as with much of Pink Floyd's material, it is open to interpretation depending on the listener's relationship to the music and to the lyrics. Other songs on Dark Side of the Moon explored more political themes, if you like. Mark Blake writes in quotes that The damning lyric of wartime cannon fodder in Us and Them seems inextricably linked to the Vietnam War, then still occupying the headlines and infiltrating American politics via the Watergate scandal of 1972. The song also inevitably touched on the fate of his, Waters, father. In an interview for Classic Rock magazine available and updated on Loudersound.com from September 2022, Waters speaks of us and them in quotes saying, Rick, right, wrote the chord sequence for us and them and I used it as a vehicle. The first verse is about going to war, how on the front line we don't get much chance to communicate with one another because someone else has decided that we shouldn't. The second verse is about civil liberties, racism and colour prejudice. The last verse is about passing a tramp in the street and not helping. The song is actually sung by David Gilmore, joined in the harmonies by Wright. The verses of the song are influenced by jazz chord progressions and has been described as both a sad and beautiful song. Another song with lyrics written by Waters that ponder life is time. Waters has said that time was about him reflecting on the fact that in his late 20s he was no longer preparing for his life to go in to get into gear, but that he was now right in the middle of it and, about, and it was about taking control of this destiny. The track is one of the few on Dark Side of the Moon to be credited as a group musical collaboration. It includes a two-minute drum solo from Nick Mason. Waters plays mute strings on bass. David Gilmore sings lead vocals in the verses, and Rick Wright leads on the bridges. Time is also distinctive for its use of ticking clocks and ringing alarms recorded by sound engineer Alan Parsons inside an antique store. The other tracks completing Dark Side of the Moon are Speak to Me, Breathe, On the Run, and Any Colour You Like. However, it is not just the music that gives Dark Side of the Moon its iconic status, but also the cover art. Pink Floyd once again relied on the design of hypnosis. This time, following reception of designs from Atom Heart Mother, for example, Rick Wright reportedly asked them to make the design for Dark Side of the Moon smarter, neater and classier. Storm Thorgerson was inspired by a photograph he had seen of a prism with a colour beam through it, among other things. The actual artwork was created by Hypnosis associate George Hardy. 
The clear and neat design of the light spectrum projected via a glass prism aimed to meet the band's requests while also representing the light effects so definitive of the band's live performances and the lyrical themes explored in the album. In an article from a few years ago for Far Out magazine, Drew Wardle writes in quotes, While it is an album born from distress and fear, it is also a celebration of life, as symbolised by the iconic, the iconic spectral light. Triangles and pyramids are objects of mythologised geometry. They are sacred shapes, somehow randomly appearing in the systemized chaos of the very fabric of life. The album is a monumental achievement. It is the complete opposite of pretension and superficiality. It simply exists as a force of nature that was created out of necessity. Dark Side of the Moon was released on the 1st of March 1973 by Harvest Records in the US and on the 16th of March in the UK. It was only a month later that the album was certified gold in the US. It entered the UK charts at number two, and despite its later success, the album has never reached number one. However, it did reach number one in the US and in France and Belgium. Upon its original release, the album was met with general positivity by critics. Melody Maker magazine labelled the album as Pink Floyd's best since Umagama and New, and New Musical Express NME described it as Floyd's most artistic musical venture. Sound magazine Steve Peacock wrote that in quotes, I'd unreservedly recommend everyone to the dark side of the moon. In the US, Rolling Stone's Lloyd Grossman, then a music critic, wrote that the album was a grandeur that exceeds mere musical melodramatics and is rarely attempted in rock. However, he was not so keen on the track Great Gig in the Sky. Mark Blake observes that Dark Side of the Moon also had another resonance with listeners of the early 1970s, as he says in quotes, Played out against a domestic situation in 1973 in which Britain was struck, stricken with its highest unemployment levels in years, and with the IRA soon bringing its conflict with the British government onto English soil, Dark Side of the Moon also seemed to mirror the troubled world around it. Dark Side of the Moon has since gone on to become one of the best-selling albums of all time, and it did remain in the Billboard 200 Albums chart for 736 non-consecutive weeks from 1973 to 1988. It has returned to the charts time and time again since its original release. According to Glenn Povey in his 2007 book Echoes the Complete History of Pink Floyd, Every one in 14 people in the United States aged under 50 will have, will have or does own a copy of the album. Given its incredible sales record, Dark Side of the Moon was certified by the Recording Industry Association of America, RIAA, as 15 times platinum in 1998, pertaining to over 15 million sales in the US. According to the official charts company UK in 2019, Dark Side of the Moon was number seven on the list of the top-selling albums of all time in the UK. Considering the legacy of Dark Side of the Moon, Tim Jones wrote in The Guardian in 2019 that many have interpreted the album differently. Jones recognises that it was intended to be an exploration of lunacy and madness. Others, like English folk singer Vin Garbutt, have taken the album as a useful metaphor for darkness, for the darkness, sorry, of the Falklands War. But of course, perhaps the perhaps an ironic contrast to Waters' desire to move away from connotations with space, Dark Side of the Moon has been heavily embraced by astronomy. Jones interviews education presenter Joss Barker at the UK's National Space Centre in Leicester as he's putting on a sold-out laser show combining the band's music with the story of the 1968 Apollo 8 mission. Barker says in quotes, Pink Floyd played a major, a major part in the, in the days of the 1960s and 70s, creating innovative sounds that captured the feelings of optimism and freedom that set out the era as something really very special. 
Indeed, Dark Side of the Moon does seem to hold a special place in many listeners' hearts. Exploring the question of the album's timeless appeal, you Fielder quotes many of the band members' responses in Classic Rock magazine, available via loudersound.com. Roger Waters is quoted as saying, Maybe it's the simplicity of the ideas that appeal to a generation going through puberty and trying to make sense of it all. Certainly when I read responses online from social media posts to forums, fans' responses range from the strength of the album's striking imagery, it simply looked cool and sounded cool, to deep lyrics about fears everyone could relate to, to it being a balanced representation of each member of the band's talents. Of course, another element of the album that has resonated with fans is its mix with a growing drug culture of the time, and I suppose it has garnered something of a reputation of being a stoner album. Mark Blake addresses this in his book and actually gives the following account, in quotes. For a record that subsequently acquired a reputation as a classic stoner album, none of those involved in Dark Side of the Moon recall or admit to any significant use during its making. Alcohol was officially banned at Abbey Road, but that didn't stop Pink Floyd having a bar and an ice bucket and keeping a fridge docked with Southern Comfort. Cocaine would find its way onto the subsequent tour, but there was, by all accounts, none of it in the studio, only the occasional joint. In the 2005 book Speak to Me, The Legacy of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, a collection of essays from fans and academics are brought together to discuss different analyses of the album. In it, Craig Bailey, creator of the website floydianslip.com, opines that Pink Floyd is a thinking person's band before anything else, and says that the cover artwork plays a significant role in the appeal of the album because it allows the band to remain anonymous and mysterious. Indeed, in the same book, Matthew Bannister takes this idea further in his essay entitled Dark Side of the Men, Pink Floyd, Classic Rock and White Masculinities. Despite their popularity, Pink Floyd were not exactly known as individual superstars, and Bannister delves into the gendered nature of Dark Side of the Moon and rock itself as a genre of music. In the album, Women are included as backing vocalists, or they are centralised in songs like Great Gig in the Sky, but Pink Floyd remain, of course, a male band, and Bannister writes in Dark Side of the Moon, women supply the body, men, mind. More generally, in rock music, writes Bannister in quotes, masculinity is normative in relation to music, and thus it is invisible in contrast to women whose sexuality tends to be highlighted because of the male gaze. Women stand out for their style, their look, their sexuality, whereas men can be more anonymous letting their technical sp- skill speak for them. As a band, Pink Floyd are certainly renowned for their technicality, as Bannister says in quotes. In this sense, they are perhaps more like an o- orchestra than a rock band. Their individuality is subjugated to the collective project of realisation of a masterwork. Indeed, In general, the group is remarkably faceless. Masculinity, then, is defined in the modern 70s by its association with power, showcased by wealth, industrial strength and technological prowess. Bannister cites Cliff Jones as saying in quotes, Pink Floyd became symbolic with the anti-image image, creating powerful icons whilst the band members who created these images walk through any shopping mall in any country unrecognised. I suppose these themes and questions of anonymity and stardom would go on to plague the band as they progressed. They achieved phenomenal success with Dark Side of the Moon and the band were exhausted and as David Gilmore explained years later, in quotes, after Dark Side, we were really floundering around. They went on to tour extensively across the UK, US and Europe in 1973 when the album was released. And by now, the tour was moving into stadiums as opposed to the halls and theatres they were used to playing. They began in Madison, Wisconsin on the 4th of March and concluded the tour with two shows that October in Europe. Another difference they found was that fans attended the sold-out shows to hear the singles and popular album tracks, rather than being happy to listen to whatever tracks Pink Floyd wanted to try out, like before. By 1974, when the 
tour ended, the band was in a state of inertia and it was the closest they had come to seriously parting ways. Pink Floyd returned to the studio to record their ninth studio album in early 1975, what would become Wish You Were Here. They had intended to work with previous sound engineer Alan Parsons, but he declined. He was now finding success himself with the Alan Parsons project, and so they employed the help of Brian Humphreys. Hanging over the band's heads, though, was still the question over creative direction. Quoted in Mark Blake's book, David Gilmore recalls, I wanted to make the next album more musical. I always thought that Roger's emergence as a great lyric writer on the last album was such that he came to overshadow the music. Gilmore was less interested in doing another concept album, whereas this was exactly what Waters wanted to do. He was grappling with concerns about the music industry itself. Speaking about this, Rick Wright is also quoted by Blake as saying he found it difficult to reconcile with Waters' preoccupations. Nevertheless, the band made some headway and songs like Shine On You Crazy Diamond began to take shape. Shine On You Crazy Diamond was written by Waters as a reflection on the constant speculation about former frontman Sid Barrett's mental state. David Gilmore wished for one side of the new album to be devoted to the track, much like Echoes had been on metal. But Waters instead successfully argued to split the song so as to bookend the album at the beginning and the end. In the 2012 documentary Pink Floyd, The Story of Wish You Were Here, Roger Waters explicitly states that the song is, in quotes, simply is just about Sid, no general generalities. Waters also goes on to say, It's my homage to Sid and my heartfelt expression of my sadness and also my admiration for the talent, the sadness for the loss of my friend. Gilmore explains in the documentary that the song stemmed from a random series of four notes he played at King's Cross Studio. He explains in quotes, Somehow these notes evoked a song about Sid and his disappearance and Gilmore calls the song brilliant whilst Nick Mason acknowledges, it is important not to write him out of history. Shine On You Crazy Diamond parts 1 to 5 is played in G, in D, in G minor by Gilmore. It features Waters on bass and lead vocals, Gilmore on electric guitar, steel guitar and backing vocals, Wright using the Hammond organ, piano, glass harp and backing vocals amongst other instrumentals, and... Nick Mason on drums and percussion. It also included a section of saxophone played by Dick Parry. The song has since gone on to be covered, edited and featured in many um, episodes in TV and films. Waters wrote two songs alone for the album and these are Welcome to the Machine and Have a Cigar. Perhaps this demonstrates Waters' takeover as the band's driving force. Indeed, in the Wish You Were Here documentary, Brian Humphreys recalls that the band were feeling pressure to follow up Dark Side of the Moon and recordings were marked by absenteeism, with members of the band outplaying squash and, in quotes, too in and too late to recordings. Certainly, Waters explains, in quotes, the rest of the album is a universal expression of my feelings of absence because I felt that we weren't really there. We were very absent. David Gilmore adds that after Dark Side of the Moon, the band, specifically Roger Waters, were thinking about why they were making music and their role in the industry. These themes are explicitly engendered in Have a Cigar. The album was recorded in the mid-1970s and, during this time, any bands looking for success pretty much had to have a recording deal. In the documentary, former Pink Floyd manager Peter Jenner explained that once a band or artist had a hit, they were encouraged to just make the next one, make it bigger and make it better. Indeed, Gilmore even says, in quotes, 
It was felt that Sid's madness has come about partly by the demands of the record industry. Waters gives a more bleak explanation, saying, You're no longer really an individual anymore. You're a cipher. You're playing a part. You're a puppet, not your own man. All of these thoughts were put together in Have a Cigar to express the sense of losing artistic control and being overrun by the powerful music industry. The song, of course, is famous for the line where an industry conglomerate asks, by the way, which one's pink? Speaking of recording for this part, Brian hum Humphreys recalls in the Wish You Were Here documentary that Gilmore's voice was felt too high and Waters couldn't get the ferocity that they wanted. Vocalist Roy Harper was recording in a neighbouring studio and he would dip in and out of Pink Floyd's control room at the time. Amidst one of the band's arguments about who should deliver this section, Roy Harper volunteered himself to give it a go, and so it is actually Harper who is heard on the track. Gilmore says that he feels Harper did a good job and he thinks it is a perfect version. Whereas Waters admits in the documentary that, in quotes, I think if I'd sung it, it would have had a lot more, it would have had a lot more vulnerability and, and been less cynical than the way he'd done it. He was singing a sort of parody, which I don't like. I regret it. Nothing against Roy, but I think if I'd persevered, I would have done it better. The song itself is something of a traditional rock anthem marked by an ongoing electric guitar and bass riff, pa piano and synthesizer. Waters' other solo written track for the album is Welcome to the Machine, which is darker in tone than Have a Cigar. Describing the song, Mark Blake writes in his book, Welcome to the Machine was an unyieldingly bleak dissertation on the human condition and more personally those a rock and roll band maybe who spent their lives in search of a dream only to find that the machine runs on dreams and very little else. People are vulnerable to their own blindness, their own greed, their own need to be loved, explained Waters. Success had to be a real need and the dream is that when you are successful, when you're a star, you'll be fine, everything will go wonderfully well. That's the dream and everyone knows it's an empty one. The song is about the business situation which I find myself in. One's encouraged to be absent because one's not encouraged to pay any attention to reality. The lyrics hardly disguise the autobiographical nature of the song, making Gilmore take the lead vocals somehow accentuated rather than softened the message. But it is Wright's VSC3 synth lines that now dominate, giving the song an unrem unremitting bleakness. The titular song, Wish You Were Here, was co-written by David Gilmore and Roger Waters. When heard on the album in chronological order, the song starts directly from the tailing off of Have A Cigar. Much like Shine On You Crazy Diamond, the song began from an opening riff strummed by David Gilmore. Again, in the 2012 documentary, Waters explains the concept of the song as pondering the following question. Can you free yourself to experience the reality of life? Gilmore calls it a simple country song, but recognises that, in quotes, because of the emotional weight it carries, it is still one of our most popular songs. Indeed, Wish You Were Here is one of Pink Floyd's most played songs on radio, and it was ranked number 302 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time in 2021. It wasn't just the band that were struggling with how to top Dark Side of the Moon. Hypnosis and Storm Thorgerson were thinking the same. In the 2012 documentary about the album, Thorgerson admits he couldn't paint or draw and he wasn't interested in producing mere pictures of the band for the album cover and says he, in quotes, rather liked images that represented the music. At the time, he explains that he was preoccupied with the letter four. There were four members of the band, four words in the title of the album, Wish You Were Here, and he got to thinking about the four elements of life, earth, wind, fire and air. His original idea centred on a stunning lakeside. The name escapes me at the moment, but I think it was Mono Lake in California. But eventually Thorgerson 
discussed the idea of someone getting burnt in the industry with photographer Aubrey Powell. Two stuntmen were used for the photo shoot at Warner Brothers Studios in California, and Ronnie Rondell was the one wearing a fireproof suit covered by a business suit. Actually, during the shoot, the wind came up and caused the fire to rise and blow around Rendell's face, causing him to fall to the ground. Powell continued photographing throughout and they did at least get the image. Continuing the album's theme of absence, Storm Thorgerson also came up with the idea to wrap the album, the record, in a black, imageless sleeve. But the George Hardy's logo of two mechanical hands and a handshake did appear on the vinyl labels so that it could be identified as a Pink Floyd record. Wish You Were Here was released on the 12th of September in the UK and the 13th in the US. This would be Pink Floyd's first album to be released under Columbia Records in the US. In Europe, they remained with EMI's Harvest Records. After a week, the album reached number one in the UK album chart and number one on the US Billboard chart. It was one of Pink Floyd's fastest selling albums of all time. Sounds Magazine praised the album as being light years better than Dark Side of the Moon, but a lot of the immediate reviews of Wish You Were Here were mixed. Peter Erskine wrote for the new musical Express that, in quotes, as a last desperate, uninspired measure, they finally succumbed to recycling the more obvious musical bits of Dark Side of the Moon. And Melody Maker put more bluntly, put it more bluntly, stating, Wish You Were Here sucks, it's as simple as that. For Rolling Stone, Ben Udmans derided the album as lackadaisical and said Pink Floyd were devoid of the sincere passion for their art. Mark Blake writes in his book that, in quotes, there was a recurring theme in the complaints that Floyd were too insular, disconnected from reality, and that Waters' lyrics were below par and too quick to bite the hand that feeds. Nevertheless, sales of the album grew, and it has since gone on to garner a reputation as one of the best albums ever made, and that it showcases some of Pink Floyd's essential sounds of sadness and anger. By the latter half of the 70s, Pink Floyd were being criticised as too old and out of touch with the emerging punk scene. However, Mark Blake notes that in quotes, Yet while his age, wealth and reputation may have been against him, Roger Waters' concerns with inequality, prejudice, rampant monetarism, the numbing of the human spirit, weren't so far removed from those being expressed by some of these young bands. Pink Floyd's next album, animals would chime with the times rather more than anyone might have expected. Punk rock was growing in popularity amongst the working classes in Britain in particular, who, writes Ewan Ling for Far Out magazine in February 2022, in quotes, likened the prog hierarchy to the bourgeoisie who discriminated against the 1970s giants like a force of lightning aching to strike a neighbouring town. The only way for Pink Floyd to stay relevant was to write an elegy to the changing England, proving to their dissenters that they are that they were as committed to the revolution as John Lyndon was. Certainly, Lyndon, made singer of the Sex Pistols, infamously wore a t-shirt branded I Hate Pink Floyd. Although Nick DeRisco attests in 2017 in an article for Ultimate Classic Rock that, in quotes, Perceived at the time as a pushback against the emerging punk ethos, Animals actually grew out of two pieces that had been part of the Pink Floyd repertoire for some time. Sheep was an update of Raving and Drooling, while Dogs has been reworked from You Gotta Be Crazy. Waters completed the album by refashioning these existing songs into an agreed-upon new theme, pairing dark human emotions with everyday animals and then creating companion pieces to round out the project. 
Bringing much of the concerns that had long bothered him, Waters envisioned a new concept somewhat borrowed from George Orwell's 1945 novel Animal Farm. Waters imagined a world in which society was reduced to three species, the dogs, pigs or sheep. Reportedly, the mood amongst the band members was an improvement from the Wish You Were Here sessions, although Waters maintained his grip on the writing and direction of the new album. Indeed, all songs on the album other than Dogs, co-written by David Gilmour, were written by Waters. Animals was recorded between April and December 1976 in Pink Floyd's own recording studio at Britannia Row Studios, London. Sound engineer Brian Humphreys was brought in again to help with the album's recording. The album's opener is Pigs on the Wing, a song split into two parts bookending the beginning and end of Animals. Part 1 is a short track, lasting just over a minute in length, and both parts give a gentler, softer sound than the main tracks in the middle of the album. In Nicholas Schaffer's book Saucerful of Secrets, The Pink Floyd Odyssey, Roger Waters is quoted as explaining, Without Pigs on the Wing, the album would have just been a kind of scream of rage. Nick Mason has said that the, that the song is a love song written by Waters for his then-wife, Carolyn Christie, and it consists of only Waters on acoustic guitar and vocals, Rick Wright on the Hammond organ, and additional musician Snowy White on electric guitar, the latter two only included in the eight-track version of the song. The second track on Animals is Dogs, and as mentioned is co-written with Waters by Gilmore. Dogs is 17 minutes in length and features Gilmore singing lead vocals in the first half and Waters singing in the second half. Writing for Prog magazine available on Loudersound.com, Daryl Eastley opines that in quotes. Dogs is one of the group's greatest performances. Gilmore's playing is unparalleled as he romps through a range of solos and refrains. It's almost as if Dog's shape shifts every single time you hear it. After eight minutes, it fades away, echoes like, to a brooding instrumental section. But here, there are no spacey gulls, just barking, baying animals, complete with Humphreys performing as well. The song illustrates the dog-eat-dog world. Gilmore's vocal lines in the first half encapsulate the real need to succeed, the desire to go on. When Waters appears, he realises the possibility that, as the titular dog, he has been used. But it's too late, drowning, not waving, as the stone takes him down, he reflects on his life. Real power, like the soon-to-be decommissioned power station on the album's cover, appeared to be there, but has ultimately eluded him. Pigs, three different ones, follows this track, in which the pigs represent those at the highest tier of the social hierarchy, holding all power inspired by a number of political figures at the time, such as Margaret Thatcher and Mary Whitehouse. To emulate the sound of the pigs on the track, David Gilmour utilises a heli talk box on his guitar solo. Gilmour can also be heard using a fretless bass guitar, right on the Hammond organ, synthesizer and piano, and Nick Mason on drums. The penultimate track on the album is Sheep, which was formerly known as Raving and Drilling, in which the sheep begin to mobilise. But alas, the sheep are, in quotes, ultimately crushed by the next wave of pigs served by dogs. History repeats itself, right easily, writes easily in his article. In his 2013 book, Roger Waters, The Man Behind the Wall, Dave Thompson writes that the song Sheep was also about, in quotes, the fans who read in magazines or were told by their friends how to behave in Floyd's presence and who didn't even consider the possibility that there might be a more enlightened alternative. For those people, the band's music was nothing more than a succession of sweet sounds and sweeping stereo effects with which to illuminate and enliven another night spent huddled around the bong. Fans turned up at shows dressed more like the merchandising mer merchandising table than the merchandising table itself, as though fines would be levied on anybody who wasn't clad in full Floyd couture. Waters has described the album himself as very violent, or rather, violence tempered with sadness. 
The cover for the album of Animals moved away from the traditional pattern now well trodden by Pink Floyd and Hypnosis. Storm Thorgerson took a rather controversial idea to Roger Waters, that being a child stumbling into his parents' bedroom and finding, in quotes, them copulating like animals, explained Thorgerson in Mark Lake's book. Waters rejected the idea, among others, and when he went cycling around South London armed with his camera, he took photographs of Battersea Power Station. By then, it was already already partially shut before it would completely close in 1980. Waters proposed the idea of a flying pig between the domineering gloomy buildings as a symbol of hope. Australian artist Geoffrey Shaw built a 40-feet pig balloon that was inflated and guided into position for the photo shoot in early December 1976. The balloon actually blew away and this caused disruption to nearby Heathrow and farms. After three days, the balloon was recovered, but the image with the pig balloon was actually superimposed onto the earlier photos of Battersea Power Station. Animals was released in January 1977 and it debuted at number two on the UK album chart, but number three in the US. However, upon its original release, it was not an album that matched the success of its predecessors Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here. New Musical Express wrote that Animals was, in quotes, one of the most extreme, relentless, harrowing and downright iconoclastic hunks of music to have been available this side of the sun. Melody Maker called it, in quotes, uncomfortable taste of reality in a medium that has become in recent years increasingly soporific. Many critics like Rolling Stone review Sorry, many critics like the Rolling Stones review took issue with the album for being overly morose or bitter. In saying that, since its release, the album was certified four times platinum in 1995 by the RIAA. For the album, the band embarked on the In the Flesh tour in 1977 across Europe and America. Animals has been said to mark the time when Rick Wright began to feel disillusioned with the direction of the band under Roger Waters' strict guidance. In Schaffner's book, Wright is quoted as saying Animals was the first one I didn't write anything for, and it was the first album for me where the group was losing its unity as well. That's when it was beginning where Roger wanted to do everything. There are certain bits of music that I quite like, but it's not my favourite album of the Floyd. Wright further explained in Mark Blake's book that I like my playing on the album, but it wasn't a fun record to make. Animals was a slog. Fallout amongst Wright and Waters would lead to his imminent departure from the band, but first he would stick around to contribute to the band's next and infamous album, The Wall. This has been a brief overview, rather quick in places, of Pink Floyd's rollercoaster career in the 1970s. They achieved record-breaking success and fame during this time, and it provided the band members with a number of interpersonal challenges. Of course, there is a lot more in-depth story, study and analysis that could be afforded to their work of this era, and I do recognise this. In the next episode, I'm going to dedicate it solely to their next album, The Wall. This is a rather selfish decision because it is indeed my favourite album of theirs and it is the one that really made me become a Floyd fan and it means very much to me personally. So I hope you'll join me for the next episode where we go through the wall. This podcast series was written and recorded by Megan and hosted on Anchor. Music was taken from Antof Lazov on Pixabay.